We'll be looking at Psalm 99 this morning. If you have your Bibles with, would like to follow along, please turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in the chairs in front of you or in the balcony as well, and you may use those. Psalm 99. Listen to this passage of Scripture. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The King is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud and they kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Let's pray. Father, speak to us this morning, we pray, as we search the scriptures and we look at your word to understand what it means. Give us wisdom and insight by your Holy Spirit and guide us this morning. May this be a special time as we just sense your presence here and are drawn closer to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone were to ask you, what is God like? How would you describe him? What would you say? Well, the most common answer that uh, many people would give is they would say that God is love. I mean, I think that's one of the first things that come to people's mind when they think about God. God is love. But others might say things like, God is powerful, or He's eternal, or He's all-knowing, all-wise. And they might express other attributes that they are aware of. But if you were to look to the Scriptures, what you would find is that the answer that the Bible gives most often is that God is holy. God is called holy more times in the Scripture than any other attribute. And what do we mean when we say that God is holy? Well, His holiness doesn't just mean that God is morally pure or He's righteous or He does those things that are right and good. His holiness really refers to all of His attributes, all that He is. When we think of it in relation to people, we say that a person is holy when they are set apart to God. They've come and placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they belong to Him now. They are set apart to His service. But when we think of God being holy, He too is set apart. He is different from His creation. He's the creator. He's the maker of everything that we see. The scripture says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. He is the thrice holy God. More than any of His creation, He is holy. And that's what this psalm is about. Psalm 99 is about the holiness of God. Three times here the psalmist tells us that he is holy in verses 3, verse 5, and again at the end of verse 9. Seven times, and seven is this number of perfection. Seven times he uses the name Yahweh or Lord in this psalm. 
And there are seven different qualities that are attributed to God as you go through this psalm. The psalmist is giving us a picture of the holiness and the perfection of God. That's why Spurgeon called this psalm the Holy, Holy, Holy Psalm. Now, why is it important for us to know that? Why is it important for us to know something about God's holiness? How does that affect each of us? Well, one answer or one reason is that in Psalm 115, verse 8, the Bible tells us we become like the God we worship. In that psalm, it speaks of those who make man-made gods and idols that they bow down to and worship. And the psalmist says that those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. If we worship gods of wood and stone that can do nothing, or if we worship gods of that are violent or evil or immoral or greedy, we are going to become like those gods. We're going to move in that direction. But if the God that we worship is holy and He's just and He's loving and He's kind, He's merciful and forgiving, then we will become more and more like Him in our character and our attitudes as well. And so we study the holiness of God. So what does this psalm tell us about God? Well, there are three things that I'm going to point out this morning as we move through this psalm. Number one, God is majestic in His holiness. God is majestic in His holiness. And we see that in verses 1 to 3. The psalmist begins by saying that the Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The psalmist tells us that God is the king over all kings. He is sovereign over all that happens in our world. We talked about this last week in Psalm 96, that the Lord reigns. And they understood that, and they looked to God as their king. Psalms 93 to 100, in fact, are called the enthronement psalms. And they all speak of God as the king, the one who is exalted and lifted up high and mighty. And Psalm 96, again last week I mentioned, was written, we believe, at the time when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem for the very first time. And the Ark was a symbol of God's kingship. It was the place where He had said He would meet with His people and where He would reign over Jerusalem and over all of Israel. And so when they brought that Ark into Jerusalem for the first time, they celebrated and rejoiced over that. And here in this psalm, they call upon the nations to worship Him. The proper response of the nations is to tremble before Him. We are to fear and honor Him. And that's what reverence means. That's what this psalm is talking about, that we are to bow down and to worship Him. This psalm also tells us that God is enthroned between the cherubim. And it's referring here when it says He is between the cherubim, both to what they understood on earth, that the two cherubim were what covered the Ark of the Covenant. There God would meet with them. But God is also seated in heaven among the angels who surround Him. The seraphim who cry, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the Scripture says that He is more awesome than all who surround Him. So we have this picture here of God who reigns as king, who's majestic in his holiness, before whom the nations are to bow. 
He is awesome in his holiness. And when people really understand that, when they understand who God is and what he has done, it changes us. Let me give you an example of that. Twenty years ago, Jack Hayford wrote the song, Majesty, Worship His Majesty. It was one of those early popular uh, Christian songs that all of us probably sang when it first came out. Well, there's a story behind that song in that he and his wife were traveling in England at that time, and they were visiting several different historic places. He said it was a very rich time, kind of looking at that, um, you know, the history of England. And one of the places they visited was called Blenheim Palace, and we have a picture of it here for you as well. And this Blenheim Palace is just a massive estate. It's got beautiful gardens around it. It's kind of a wonderful old building. that was. It was built by Queen Anne in the early 1700s. She presented it to John Churchill, who was the Duke of Marlborough, in honor of his leadership in the military victories over Spain. Quite a gift to somebody who had led their country in victory, and she gives them this nice estate. Well, it was two centuries later that Winston Churchill was born and raised here. Can you imagine growing up in something like that? As Jack Hayford was looking at this place and understanding the history. This is where Winston Churchill wrote many of his uh, famous uh, speeches that inspired the English in their fight against Nazi Germany during World War II. And Jack said, I could see how being raised here would shape a person's sense of destiny and connection to history and royalty and all of the things that were a part of that. It would shape you as an individual. And he said, as we visited these kind of sites, I began to see how even the British people, though small in number, have played such a large role in the history of the world. Because each person sees himself somehow linked with the one who wears the crown and bears the scepter. That's my king. That's my queen. And I have an allegiance to her. And Jack said that's when it dawned on him that that's the very way that God wants us to see our relationship with him. That we belong to the king of all kings. And we are connected to him in fellowship and in a close relationship. And that's why we are to worship his majesty and that's why we are to live differently. Remember Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And He extends that authority to His children when He commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. He gives us power to cast out demons. He invites us to pray with authority, to ask for anything in His name, and He will do it. We go representing the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Peter understood that, and that's why Peter said these words. He said, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. We belong to the King of Kings. And that truth should make a difference every day in the way that we live and in our sense of calling and purpose and service in this world. Secondly, this psalm tells us that God is mighty in His holiness. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. When it says that the King is mighty, 
He loves justice, and he has established equity in Jacob, and he has done what is just and right. God makes the rules, and he enforces the rules. And there are people in our world who don't like that. They'd rather make the rules themselves or live as they choose and as they please. But God is the one who is in authority here. Now that would be a terrible thing if God were cruel and unjust. If God's only desire was to torment us or to afflict us, that would be an awful thing. Many in our world live under earthly tyrants who are just like that. They are cruel dictators. They oppress their people for personal gain. But the scripture tells us that our king is mighty and he loves justice and he has established equity or fairness. He always does what is just and right. In fact, he cannot do anything other than what is just and right. And those words are meant to comfort us. The fact that God is mighty and just and fair should comfort all of us because God is in control in this world. I was thinking about a story related to my dad, and maybe it's appropriate to tell this story on Father's Day. We kind of reflect and maybe think back upon our dad's example and what that meant to us. When I was a child growing up on the farm, and I was about as tall as my dad's waist, I remember some very vivid memories at that time. I uh, loved my dad, and I tagged along with him a lot working on a farm. You just do that. You spend a lot of time together. And I remember looking at my dad, you know, and thinking how strong he always looked to me. Uh, he had farmer hands. He had those big hands that come from milking cows and working with machinery and working in the gardens. And his forearms, to me as a little kid, just seemed like uh, Popeyes, if you know that cartoon character. They were just big forearms and hands. And I thought of my dad in that way, as loving and as strong. And there would be times when my dad would take me to another farm and everybody had a dog on their farm it seemed like and some of those dogs could be a little threatening when you're standing about this tall you know to my dad they only came up maybe as high as his waist but to me they were looking me right in the eye and I wasn't so sure about those dogs at times and I remember when my dad would pick me up you know and lift me up and hold me I felt safe until I got to know that dog or felt like I could trust him I remember another time when we were leaving our farm, going for a drive somewhere or maybe an errand. I don't know, but the whole family got in the car. And as we were pulling out from our driveway and we got out to the end where the mailbox was, there were three young men that were hanging around our mailbox. And they looked like trouble. I was thinking back, you know, they looked older to me. They were probably teenagers and just relative age difference there looked older than they were. But they looked like trouble. And my dad thought that too. And so he decided to just simply drive around the farm or section about four miles and then come back. And sure enough, these young men had come up to the house and they were trying to get in. And my dad went up to him, you know, and he took care of this. He knew who they were. He took care of it. He sent them away and he called their parents and told them what was going on. And I looked at my dad in that sense of he made me feel safe in this world. He loved me, and he was my protector and my defender. And it gave me a picture of what God is like to us. He is our shelter in times of trouble. He's our strong tower to whom we can run when we need to run and find that kind of safety. Because there's a bully in this world, too, and his name is Satan. 
But Satan can do no more than God allows. And God can boot him out any time he wants to, and one day he will. He will be cast into the lake of fire. Why does God wait? It's simply to give people time to repent of their sin and to turn to Christ for forgiveness because He wants to populate heaven with those who know Him. You see, the fact that God is mighty and just and fair is meant to comfort us. But there is another side to that too. The fact that God is mighty and just and holy creates a problem for us because we are not holy. We are sinners. And God punishes sin. God hates sin, and He's opposed to everything that is evil in our world. So what can we do? Well, that's where this third truth means so much. That God is merciful in His holiness. And we see that in verses 6 to 9. God is merciful, first of all, in revealing Himself to us. He has shown us what He is like. And God condescended in sending His Son to earth for us to become like us. Here this One who was the Creator, the Maker of heavens and earth, now entered into His creation and took upon Himself our humanity, our weakness, to become like us. God condescended to us in revealing His Word in telling us what He is like. And here it says that God spoke to His people and He did that through Moses the lawgiver and Aaron the priest and Samuel the prophet. He used those men to lead His people and to show them what He was like. But most of all, God has revealed Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, the Scripture says of Jesus that He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. If you could go to that next slide here from Hebrews chapter 1. In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Then all we need to do is look at Jesus. And we see one who modeled perfect grace and truth, who spoke words of forgiveness and kindness and mercy, and yet always spoke the truth and called men and women to turn from their sin and to repent and to enter into His kingdom. God is merciful in revealing Himself to us. God is also merciful in answering our prayers. In verses 7 and 8, it says that He spoke to them from the pillar of cloud, and they kept His statutes and decrees He gave them. And, O Lord our God, You answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God. You you think of this in terms of God led them in the wilderness. He led them by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And He leads us in this life when we listen to His Word and to His Holy Spirit. 
He's the one who answers our prayers too and who responds to us when we come to Him. He invites us to come and to have fellowship with Him. The Scripture says He delights in the prayers of the upright and He hears our prayers. And all of those things, again, are intended to comfort us that we have this kind of loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. And thirdly, God is merciful in forgiving us our sins. God forgave their sin, but He also punished their misdeeds. God forgives our sin whenever we turn and ask Him to forgive us, and we turn in a spirit of repentance. But God also disciplines us in this life to make us more and more like His Son. He calls us to be holy just like Him. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. God wants us to walk with Him in an honest and open relationship, turning away from sin, turning to Christ, growing in our attitudes, our conduct, to be more and more like Him. But there's only one way that we can be holy in this life. And it is through Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. There is a beautiful picture that runs through this psalm, but it is subtle. It takes really eyes to see it. You have to look for it closely if you're going to find it there. But the picture that is here is a picture that's based upon the Ark of the Covenant. We have a literal picture of what the Ark of the Covenant looked like as those have have studied the Scripture, have tried to do a drawing of it. And there are connections to the Ark of the Covenant that go all the way through this psalm. The Ark was a, was a box about a yard long and a foot and a half wide and deep. And it was covered with gold all over, inside, out, on top. And on the cover, as you see there, on what was called the mercy seat, there were these two cherubim whose wings faced inward, covering that. Some believe that those two cherubim represented God's justice and His mercy, symbolic of that. And it was there between the cherubim, on top of the mercy seat, where God had said, I will meet with my people. In this psalm, there are references to it. In verse 1, it says, He sits enthroned between the cherubim. There God is present among His people. In verse 5, it says, Worship at His footstool. Now, the word footstool had a special meaning to those in Israel. The Ark of the Covenant was called His footstool. Sometimes that word footstool referred to Mount Zion, the place where later the temple would be built and the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies inside that temple. And Mount Zion was sometimes called His footstool. And at other times, because they understood how great God is and that no building can contain Him, earth was called His footstool, and heaven was His throne. And so you have this picture of this mighty God who has condescended to come down to earth to meet with His people in this specific place above the mercy seat. And they are called to worship Him at His footstool. But there's another symbol here. Inside of the footstool, inside of the Ark of the Covenant, was placed 
the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, that represented God's standards of righteousness for us, and yet we had broken them. We had sinned against God, and so in a sense, here inside this box, this Ark of the Covenant, is the picture of man's sin. And above it, God dwells. And what is between this holy, awesome, mighty, majestic God and man's sinful fallenness? It is the mercy seat. It's the cover where once a year the high priest in the Old Testament would bring an offering as a sacrifice for sins. And he would enter into that place and the blood would be placed upon the mercy seat covering our sin. It's the bridge illustration of the Old Testament, if you will. It's really picturing what there is between a holy God and sinful man is this blood that was shed as an offering for our sins. And then what does the Bible say of Jesus? He is our great high priest who when he died on the cross for our sins entered into that holy place not made with hands but in heaven itself where he sprinkled his blood as an atonement for our sin once for all. That's why the scripture is so clear in saying that there is only one way that we can come before this holy God. It is only on the basis of His shed blood for our sins that we can approach this holy God. Have you come to Christ that way? If you have not come through faith in Jesus Christ and His atoning death for your sins, you have not really come to God at all. And you will be sent away from His presence into the outer darkness. There is only one way to be right with God. It is through placing our faith in Jesus, His Son, who died on the cross for our sins. And when we place our trust in Him, He forgives us, and His blood covers all that we have done or will do in the future. What a beautiful picture that is. And you can see why those in the Old Testament who understood it and why the writers of Scripture in the New Testament made it so clear that Jesus is the way. He's our sacrifice. He's the one who has made it possible for us to worship a holy God. Let us come before Him in that spirit of reverence and thanks. God is majestic in His holiness. He is the King. And He deserves our highest loyalty. God is mighty in His holiness. He is to be worshipped for His power, His justice. One day He will put an end to all sin. And God is merciful in His holiness. He has provided a way that we can know Him. And He forgives us and cleanses us of what we have done. Shall we worship Him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words of Scripture. And as we come before you this morning, we are so grateful for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Thank you that you were willing to die in our place and pay that penalty that we deserve. If you are here this morning and you have never placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you would like to know that your sins are forgiven, I just encourage you to open up your heart and in your heart to say to Him, Lord Jesus, I need you. And I ask you to come into my life and forgive my sins and be my Savior and Lord. And he will do that. 
He will come in, and the scripture says, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Father, I pray that you would draw us close to you, that if there are things in our life that we need to repent of or turn away from, that we would do that, that we would honor you each and every day by the way that we live and the things that we say and do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.